Aloha, and welcome to SUP FM, the podcast for stand-up paddleboarders everywhere. So with no further ado, let's get out on the water and on with the show. Hello and welcome back to the SUP FM podcast. And this week we welcome back to the show a guest who gave seriously great value last time he was on. It's John McFadgen, who appeared back in August, season two, episode 21. And it's really worth catching that episode if you haven't listened to it already to find out more about his epic challenge and his adventures. And if you're not able to get out on the water, this interview will give you some inspiration, particularly if you're looking ahead to future adventures. As John talks about his UK-based trips he made in 2020, and also pre-2020 visits to a couple of countries which are probably less likely to be on your bucket list for your SUP trip abroad when things open up again. So here is Mr. Sup the World, John McFadgen. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, John. Welcome back to Sup FM. Hi, Simon. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. It's, uh, we're recording this last Friday in January and it's cold out there, but uh, I'm hoping you'll warm us up with a few more of your your stories. Your last episode with us was absolutely fantastic. It was one of the most downloaded episodes that we'd, we'd had. So very keen to, to get you back on and to talk about some of your experiences. But just by way of introduction and those who haven't heard your previous episode, your moniker is basically Sup the World. Could you just explain to those people who haven't heard about you and heard the previous episode what that's all about? Yes, of course. It's a, it's a big dream of mine, really. I, I consider myself just to be a, a normal paddler, of probably of average ability, but I've got a big, big dream, and that is to go stand-up paddleboarding in every country in the world. At the beginning of last year, at the beginning of 2020, I'd had the good fortune to have paddled in 45 different countries worldwide. Uh, and of course, 2020 was the, the year of lockdown and the year of COVID. So still in 45, um, I've got great hopes for the future, but uh, very difficult times at the moment for anyone who's interested in international travel. Absolutely. And uh, of more importance, uh, we did make the commitment that we would both paddle down the Canal de Midi together. So we've had to put that back as well, haven't we? We did. Yeah. I mean, that, that's still very definitely on my agenda. It's a lovely part of the world there. And just as you mentioned that now, Simon, I can I can actually visualise myself on the Canal de Midi and uh, I can visualise it happening in July or August and I can feel the heat of the sun in my skin. And I'm really looking forward to making that happen. Absolutely. And uh, I, I echo all of that, but I just add in uh, a glass of Van Blanc as well. <laughs> Definitely. Fantastic. So um, a lot's happened since we last spoke. Uh, you were midway through your love affair with the uh, the lakes, the Lake District, and you've, you've spent quite a lot of time on those lakes paddling around the perimeter of them. And maybe we can pick that up a bit 
later on. But the really big news is that you were longlisted for a travel writer competition for the Brandt Guides. And for those who don't know the Brandt Guides, they don't tend to, to follow the normal types of things, normal recommendations that, uh, that the standard guides have. They're very much out there on their own. And they are supporters of travel writing particularly. So that was that was quite an achievement to be longlisted. Yeah, I'm really excited about that, Simon. And I only came across that opportunity a few days before the deadline. And I can remember thinking to myself, have I got time to write something? Have I got time to put it together and edit it and turn it into something that's got a chance of appealing to people in it? I had to make a yes or no decision, and I'm really glad I decided to do it because I was very excited a few weeks ago just to find out that I'd been longlisted. So that means I've made the the cut of the final 18. And I, I, as we're recording this now, I'm waiting to hear whether I'll go any further. But whether I get onto the shortlist or not, I'll be absolutely delighted and you know very very pleased to have achieved what I've achieved. Well, it's a great bit of writing and. This episode will go out after the announcement because I think that's due to happen in the next few days. But we will link to that, and it's um, it's a story or it's a story of your experience, which is called the officer, and it concerns a topic which we're going to talk about a little bit later on in the podcast, which is your visit to Syria. And for those of you listening who think, oh, this must have been quite some time ago. But it wasn't. It was it was 2019, wasn't it? It was. It was October 2019, and Syria was just starting to actually. Maybe do, do we want to talk about this later, Simon? Or let's leave that as a bit of a, a teaser. There's a lot to talk about about Syria, but before we do, let's just focus on on the domestics because you've really used your opportunity this year to explore locally, like. I guess we all have. And there's been a couple of things that you've been focused on. The first thing is your mission uh, in the Lake District, which I know is not far away from, from where you live. And you set yourself a challenge to to paddle around the perimeter of all of the lakes or all of the, the ones that you're allowed on. Um, and then also you set off to the place of your birth, uh, to do the Great Glen Challenge as well. And um, details about those are on your, your site. But just quickly take me through the lakes, because it was, it was something that you hadn't done previously, despite living not far away from them. That's right. It's a little bit embarrassing that I've lived so close to the, the beautiful Lake District and I'd never actually paddled there. So although last year had a lot of, problems and drawbacks for a lot of people you know it did give me the opportunity to explore a little bit home and it it was a wonderful challenge you know it, it, it sort of started by accident Simon where I I thought yeah I've got to go and explore the Lake District and uh, I went up one afternoon in, in July last year with one of my daughters and we paddled on Derwent Water and instead of just paddling around we we decided to paddle around the perimeter and after that, I thought, oh, maybe I'll come back and do another lake and, and paddle the perimeter of another lake and then another and, and then another. And I eventually realized, because I was posting about this on Facebook and other social media, 
And by the time I paddled the perimeter of all 12 of the, the lakes that you're allowed to paddle on, I came to the realisation that no one had ever done it before. So I, I, I'm not necessarily claiming it's a Guinness World Record, but I am claiming the the record of being the very first person to stand up paddleboard around the perimeter of all 12 lakes in the Lake District. Now, I say I say all 12. There are 16 large lakes in the Lake District, but four of them were not allowed to stand up paddle on. So I met the challenge of, of paddling the perimeter of the other 12. Well, that's something. And something the lakes is known for is its variable weather, normally a bit of rain. How did the weather treat you? Because, you know, it can get a bit windy as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the weather was quite mixed. I, w- I was very fortunate that I did most of the, well, I did all of the paddling in July, August or September. And a lot of the time I, I was blessed with, you know, bright, bright, hot sunshine, very little wind and the, the surface of the lakes was flat. But we did have quite a few windy days as well. And one sort of very memorable downwinder right down the middle of Wastwater with a, a few fellow suppers of mine. And uh, I, I think it was the strongest downwinder I've ever done in my life. I've tended to be a bit of a an easy weather flat water paddler in the past. So I definitely took a, a, a step further there. I mean, one of the things about the Lake Districts as well is it's difficult to plan ahead because you can you can use apps like, for example, I, I use windy.com to, to get the wind forecast and they tend to get the wind speed and the gust speed accurate, but they don't always get the direction correct because of the the geography of the Lake District. You know, sometimes the wind will be funneled right down the middle mm. of the lake and it, you tend to think, oh, well, if I paddle on the on the left-hand bank, I'll be sheltered from the wind, but in actual fact, you've just got it coming straight into your face. So uh-huh. you, you need to be prepared for that. But the, the other good thing about the Lake District, it's such a big place and there's so many different, you know, different lakes where lying in different directions that you can probably find somewhere to paddle every single day, no matter how bad the weather is. And there's always something to look at. I mean, it's just the most spectacular place to paddle. Yeah, I mean, people sometimes ask me which is my favourite lake, and it probably depends on the day of the week that you ask me because there's so many different lakes that are all so beautiful in their own particular way that it's such a tough decision to make. And then you did the the Great Glen. Well, it's a classic canoe route, isn't it? But um, as stand-up paddleboarders... It's been um, a formalised race and uh, obviously people do it informally. And um, 96 kilometres and you did it the Inverness to Fort William direction. And and for the, those, again, who aren't sort of au fait with it, it's it's a classic collection of locks and canals um, that get, get you through from uh, coast to coast, basically. Yeah, I mean, it, that was another amazing experience and another opportunity, I think, that arose, you know, because of the challenges that we faced last year. And, you know, last year wasn't a great year for me in my own personal life. I wasn't working for most of the year and I spent quite a lot of time, you know, just sitting in the house either during lockdown or or, or even not during lockdown and feeling a little bit sorry for myself. So I was... I was really delighted that there were those few occasions that I managed to drag myself, you know, off off my city and out from underneath that that comfort blanket, and I went out and did these things. And I actually, I paddled on the Great Glen at the end of October, which 
if anyone knows Scotland and they know the Scottish weather, it's not always the, the warmest there at the end of October. It was probably about as cold as I would want to be to be doing that paddle. Not so much for the paddling point of view, but I was wild camping just in a tent and a sleeping bag that I carried on on the front of my board. And I've got solid recollections of certainly three nights lying awake in the middle of the night, unable to get to sleep because I was so, so cold. But in some ways that made the experience, you know, it was it was difficult at the time feeling cold. But when I look back now, that that was part of what made it so special. It's one of the challenges, isn't it, when you're wild camping, and also when you, you've got you've got the need to keep your kit as lightweight as possible, particularly those um, those sleeping bags. You know, it does say three seasons, but I'm not quite sure which seasons they are. Yeah, certainly none that I recognise in the UK. Yeah, I think you're right there. I used a three season sleeping bag, and I, I think the three seasons they were referring to were summer, summer, and summer. <laughs> but some aware. This is the yeah. <laughs> some are, yeah. Not not in sunny Scotland, I guess. No, exactly. But uh, but you you made it through. So you came down from Inverness. Um, you made it through Loch Ness. Sometimes that can be a little bit hairy. I've seen people doing downwinders down there. What what were the conditions like? Yeah, I I decided people. I decided to travel from Inverness to Fort William. Although people normally do this route the other way because the prevailing wind normally goes from Fort William to Inverness. But based on the forecast for that week, I know I made the right decision to go from Inverness. And basically the the first full day and almost all of the second full day were spent paddling through Loch Ness. And I would say the weather conditions were mixed. It was the first morning was a little bit mixed as I, I travelled from Doch Garach down to Urquhart Castle. There was a bit of wind, a bit of chop, a bit of waves, but nothing insurmountable. I stopped at Urquhart Castle for some lunch, and when I got back onto the water, it was just—it was completely flat. The wind had died away, and it was absolutely perfect paddling conditions. So I just headed straight down the middle of the loch to Foyers, where I was planning to spend the night. Unfortunately, the, the following day when I got up at Foyers and I was heading for Fort Augustus, I was paddling into very strong wind, which was whipping up waves on, on the surface of the water. And I would say that day is the most challenging conditions I've ever paddled, and especially to, to have it constant all day. I was just paddling into wind and, and into waves that had been raised up by the wind. And there was almost no hiding place on that side of the lock either. You know, you couldn't stop for a rest because you would find yourself, you know, a hundred meters back down, but back the way you came from. So I just had to keep going, keep going, keep going. Yeah, and and so where were you at that point? Because because um, because we've got the locks connected by canals, and then obviously yeah. it comes out the Loch Lochy and um, Fort William. Yeah, I mean, at that point, I was just at the bottom end of Loch Ness. It was before I, before I came back off Loch Ness and back onto the canal system. It was certainly worth paddling through Loch Ness because when you come off Loch Ness at the south end, you find yourself in, in my opinion anyway, one of the most beautiful places in the world. It's a tiny town, maybe even a village called Fort Augustus, and it's got a, a huge lock system and. You know, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world, but boy, was that a tough portage carrying my, 
my board, my paddle and all my gear off. I had to do it in three separate trips. Wow. Yeah. And that there is a succession of it. Is that where there's that succession of locks? Yeah. I, I can't anyone? remember how many there are. I think there's maybe about seven of them all together. Uh, and I was going uphill as well. So it was a tough challenge. And then you almost got, got there, but uh, the conditions ended up just being a bit too much in the end. That's right. Yeah, I was going to say that. Uh, I didn't complete the, the, the whole 96 kilometres, unfortunately. The weather defeated me about halfway down Loch Lochy. And th- th- this might surprise you, but the wind was actually behind me. But it was so much more than I could cope with. And, and twice I, I, I was sort of blown onto a a small beach, and the first time I managed to fight my way back out, uh, even though it was tough to get going, and I got back out onto the water, but I got blown ashore again. Uh, Certainly the the, the waves in the middle of the loch were were absolutely huge, and they were just breaking all over the place. And I think if I'd been in a group of people and I hadn't had a board full of all my luggage, I think I might have been tempted to try and paddle a little bit further, but I was conscious... Primarily conscious of, of of safety, you know, I didn't want to put myself at risk, and I didn't want to to put anyone else at risk if they'd had to come and rescue me. But I think I think I was slightly unfortunate, Simon, because I'd chosen to to, to paddle down the, the the eastern side of Loch Lochy, and where I was blown ashore, what was quite a sort of built-up area with luxury hotels. Uh, and villas and apartments where people would stay for a holiday. If I'd been on the other side, uh, I would have been in the wilderness. And I think I might have just got off the water, put my tent up, spent the night there and, and, and had a look at what the weather was like tomorrow. But because of where I ended up washed ashore, it, it just felt the right thing to to, to to draw a line under that particular adventure uh, and to, to put it in my diary to go back again and fight again another day. Well, absolutely, and uh, yeah, I know that. Um, I know that lot pretty pretty well. So um, you grabbed a taxi, did you, or something? And 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 your your car was back in Inverness. That's so right. So how did you how did you manage to get all the way back there from Lockie? Right. Yeah, I mean, my plan was to paddle all the way to Fort William and then just get a bus from Fort William back to Inverness right. because I because I called it short. Uh, yeah, I, I did take the easy way out. Uh, I called a taxi, which came from Fort William, picked me up on the on the side of Loch Lochie and took me back to Inverness. I just felt, do you know, sometimes you just feel that you want to go home. Uh, and that, that was the way I felt. Yeah. So uh, I guess I could have blew the budget a little bit that the price of a taxi for that ride is a lot more than the price of a bus. But for, for me, it, it was worthwhile. I got back to my car. I had some fish and chips at Inverness and then I, I just drove through the, the the late evening early morning and I, I got back to my home in Southport about two o'clock in the morning and it was nice just to it was nice just to crawl back into bed feeling feeling a little bit defeated but also a little bit safe well absolutely safety always first and unfinished business is never a bad thing um, to fire you up so so one of the things I particularly wanted to talk about, and we referred to it earlier on, is your adventures in Syria. Now, that's quite a, a brave, I guess, or um, you know, certainly a, a not, not intuitive location to, to go and, and paddleboard. 
how on earth did you get the idea of, of going to Syria, particularly with all the, the recent problems out there? Yeah, that, that's a brilliant question, Simon. People often ask me, John, where did you get the idea for that particular adventure? And sometimes I can't even remember, but I, I know exactly where the, the, that seed of travelling to Syria was planted. And mm-hmm. some of your, your listeners might remember from the, the previous episode that I was on, I spoke about the, the time I spent in the Arctic Circle, wild camping at the side of a river or on the boundary between Sweden and Finland. Uh, and people might remember that because it was the scene of the famous giant inflatable pink flamingo incident. Uh, and if people ha- if people haven't, if people, yeah, if people don't know that story, Simon, maybe they can come back and listen to the, the previous episode. But while I was there, I I met two young German men fr- from Dusseldorf. They were called Ben and Lucas, and they were hiking through the, the wilderness on, on, on that border. And I got talking to them, and of course, they were asking me what I was doing there. So I explained my quest to stand up paddleboard in every country in the world. And they began to question me. It's not the first time I've had these questions, but people say, well, what about countries that don't have any sea? What will you do there? And I say, well, I'll I'll find a lake to paddle on. Well, what about countries that don't have a lake? And I say, well, I'll, I'll find a river to paddle on. And then what about Yemen? What about North Korea? What about Syria? These were the questions they were asking me, and it made me think, what about Syria? What is it about Syria that would mean a person cannot go stand up paddle boarding? So that was where the seed was planted. Yeah, I came home from that trip, and I think we're very fortunate in the times we live in. There's so much information readily available on the internet and I began to research that and I I enjoy reading other people's travel blogs especially if they've gone to interesting or unusual places and I found out that Syria was just starting to open up to to western tourists. There'd been a few brave souls who'd who'd trailblazed their way into Syria as tourists. They'd come back out the other end and they'd, they'd written a blog post or some sort of report to prove they'd been there. I did a lot of research and I asked some questions on some of the the travel websites as well. And I was introduced to a travel agency in Syria who were able to organize you know, a guided tour through the country and they were able to organize pre-approval for a visa. It's not necessarily an absolute certainty that you'll get a visa. Yeah. So... It, it it came from there. I did I did a lot of research, and I would encourage anyone who's thinking of visiting a an interesting or unusual place to do their own research. You know, if you're going into a a place like Syria where there's been a lot of strife and turmoil over recent years, the the, the Syrian people call it the crisis. I would encourage people to do their own research because you need to decide for yourself whether that's a safe thing to do or not. But the research I did led me to believe that it would be safe for me to spend a few days in Syria, that it would be possible for me to spend a few days in Syria, and that it might even be possible to go stand up paddle boarding while I was there. So just tell me a bit about your routing, because my guess is, is that they don't have direct flights into Damascus at the moment from Gatwick. Yeah, that, that that that's correct. That that would have been my first choice, of course, Simon. But it was a bit of a it was a bit of a longer journey than that. Uh, 
I initially flew from Manchester Airport into Istanbul, and even that, I was I was probably nervous most of that trip, and the the nerves probably began at Manchester Airport because I suddenly started to think, I wonder if the authorities know that I'm going to Syria. Do you think they'll stop me from boarding <laughs> the aeroplane? And that the the gate that we departed on from Manchester, that it was full of UK. Border Patrol officers going around questioning people. Uh, I don't know what they were questioning for. And I was just sitting there waiting for them to come to me and thinking, they're going to say, where are you going? And I say, I'm going to Syria and I'm going to be taken into a side room and, you know, probably just questioned until the aeroplane's gone and then and then let out. But nothing like that happened. I just got in the aeroplane. I flew into Istanbul. I had a couple of hours layover there. And then I flew into into Lebanon, into Beirut, the capital of Lebanon. Mm-hmm. And how was that? That that was a that was an interesting place to visit. I had a one night there, either side of the either side of the trip to Syria, and the, the first full day I had in in Beirut, I went paddling round a, a, a very sort of famous structure there called Pigeon Rock, which mm-hmm. is a a rock that forms an archway and you can paddle through the middle of it. So I was really excited to get on the water there and paddle round. And it was quite, it was a little bit tricky paddling through the middle of this arch because the, you know, the, the waves were coming in from the front, but they were bouncing off the the sides of the arch and there, there wasn't any sort of one direction that the, the water was moving in. But I was really proud that I managed to paddle through the arch without falling down. And I was so proud that just as I just as I come out of the arch and I relaxed a little bit, a huge wave hit the side of my board and tipped me in. So I didn't quite make it. <laughs> I didn't quite make it all the way through. But there is a saying that if you never fall in, you're not trying hard enough, and I, I do believe that's true. Exactly. The other one is uh, if you're not getting wetter, you're not getting better. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm fond of trussing that one out. People in Lebanon, have they seen stand-up paddling before? I mean, it's quite a sophisticated country, despite all of the, the troubles that they've had over the years. Yeah, I, I didn't see any other stand-up paddle boarders while I was there. But my, my previous research on the internet, I had seen people stand-up paddle boarding in that area. And I, I, I think there is a stand-up paddle boarding community in Lebanon. I wasn't able to to make contact with anyone to paddle with, unfortunately. I did try and reach out to a, a page on Facebook, but uh, I wasn't able to arrange anything. So yeah, I think stand-up paddleboarding exists almost everywhere in the world, to be honest, Simon. I totally agree. It's uh, It seems to be absolutely everywhere, which is fantastic. I mean, it's just so wonderful to see see its growth. And Obviously, as we all know, it's got got so many incredible benefits, which you will uh, really enjoy. So, so you're in Lebanon, you're in for a, a stopover. So that was another tick in the box. Going into Syria was that across the land border? I presume it wasn't a flight. How did that work? Yeah, it involved two taxis, a minibus, lots of queuing up at border control and passport control, getting a visa. I had a very unfortunate incident on my way into Damascus. People might have heard of the of the story of Paul, who Paul who famously lost his eyesight on the road to Damascus. It's a famous Bible story. But I lost something even more important than my eyesight. Sadly, I lost my mobile phone 
on the road to Damascus. Oh, I, 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 it was awful. I got a, I got a taxi from the bus station in Beirut onto a main road where I would meet up with a, a kind of minibus taxi, and it was on the in the process of transferring myself and all my gear from that taxi into the minibus that somehow I lost my phone. As soon as I got into the minibus, I realised it was gone. I turned round, of course, the taxi's gone, and I've, I've no idea whatever happened to that mobile phone, but of course we're used to, in our modern society, we feel lost without our mobile phone, even if even if we're sitting in our front lounge. Yeah. So you can imagine what it must have felt like going into into Syria, a country that I was nervous about visiting, and I, I felt as if I'd had my right hand removed. Yeah, no, it's it's difficult at the best of times. I think, you know, you can't do any research and obviously you can't contact anyone. That must have been uh, quite a wrench, but you, you still managed to survive. So so from Damascus, I obviously know the answer to this. You went to an, in what looks like an absolutely amazing place called Arwood, which is on the, on the coast, uh, and you paddled there. But that's quite some dif- distance from Damascus. And it goes through a place called Homs, which is sort of very heavily affected uh, by the war. Just tell us about that journey, because that must have been quite something. I, I, I skirted very, very close to Homs, and you could see, a, a, you know, you could see the city in the distance. And I think we only, if you live a normal lifestyle in the West, you know, we only hear about these places on the news. It was fascinating being on that motorway and seeing signs for, you know, Baghdad, and there was an arrow pointing off to the right, or or Homs, there was an arrow pointing off to the right. But it was an absolutely fascinating journey. And the, the best thing about that whole journey was pulling off into a motorway service station, which is nothing like any motorway service station we have in our country. We, we think we are quite advanced here. But this motorway service station on Syria, it had its own swimming pool. It had its own outdoor swimming pool where you could sit beside the swimming pool and have a cup of tea. It actually had its own dodgums as well. I just thought it was amazing. You know, you certainly don't see that on any of the, the service stations on the M1 in England. No, no. Well, maybe that's a recommendation for them. But the people there, um, what what were they like? Because they they must have uh, had quite a surprise seeing tourists, and you know, obviously that would have been doubled with your your sup. Um, how did they receive you? Were they all friendly? I mean, obviously there was a language barrier. My guess is. Um, how how did they how did you get on with them? Yeah, I, I found very few people in Syria spoke English. I did have a tour guide with me who who spoke better English than I do. I think, which I was very privileged to have him escorting me around. But the, the general people spoke virtually no English, and I was quite people quite often thought I was Russian. Obviously, there's been a big Russian influence in mm-hmm. Syria recently, but you know. On more than one occasion, somebody would sort of ask myself or my tour guide if I was Russian. But my, my over-overwhelming memory of Syria was the friendliness of the people. You know, people stopped me in the park and asked if they could take a selfie with me, uh, you know, with their camera, and then I would take one with mine. You know, people shared a, a pomegranate with me. I, I found the people to be to be wonderfully welcoming, and the, the, the Arabs, of course, are famous for their hospitality and. Nothing happened in Syria that, that that would make me think otherwise. And then you you made your way towards um, where you identified as the place that that you were going to paddle, and it looks like quite a spectacular uh, destination. Tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah, the, the place I paddled was a, a tiny island called Arwad. It lies five kilometres off the coast of Syria. The the nearest large city is a place called Tartus, which is maybe a bit more of a secular place than, than Damascus was. You certainly still saw people who were very religious, but you, you know it was maybe slightly more westernised than I, I felt Damascus was. It was also, on the road into Tartus, it was very militarized there were a lot of military checkpoints with you know what to my limited knowledge seems you know very heavy military hardware guns and machine guns and rifles and things but i never felt unsafe you know i felt that those army officers were there to protect me and people like me rather than to be a threat to me so the the, the 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 initial journey took me to Tartus, and then I spent a night in the the four star hotel in Tartus, and I could have been in a four star hotel anywhere in the world except there was no alcohol in the minibar. But apart from that, I could have been in the could have been in London. And yeah. the following day was the day I had my paddle planned. And when I first put this concept together, I was planning to paddle from Tartus out to the island of Arwads. And back mm-hmm. again, that, that was my plan. So it would have been a, a 10 kilometer paddle across the sea. But unfortunately, sometimes in the Mediterranean, you, you just get huge, huge, huge swell. And I'd been looking at the forecast in advance and I knew this was going to happen. You know, the, there was one, one and a half and two meter swell out on the sea that day. It just, it, it, it certainly wasn't possible for me to paddle on it. And even the small boat that I got from Tartus out to, to Arwad, I felt a little bit queasy sitting in a, a motorised boat that someone else was driving. So so plan A was to do that journey uh, as a return journey. Plan B was to do that journey one way, depending on the wind direction. Uh, and plan mm-hmm. C, which was the, the plan that I ultimately plumbed for, was just to, to get the boat out to Arwad and do a little bit of paddling out there which is what i ultimately aimed to do and that was when you had your chat with the officer absolutely simon yeah the 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 famous officer i had to although everything had been agreed in advance by the 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 tour company that i went with and they'd obtained permission for me to do this paddle from the ministry of tourism i still had to meet the man who i think he was in charge of the whole of the island of arwad i never ever found out his name and in my presence, he was only ever referred to as the officer. But I was taken into a room which looked, it looked a little bit like a movie set, Simon. You know, there was a, a huge mahogany desk at the, at the far end of the room. And the, the officer was sitting behind the desk with his army camouflage and his, his huge epaulets in each shoulder. And, and sitting behind the officer was a large portrait-style photograph of Bashar al-Assad, the, the, the president mm-hmm. of Syria. Who, he seemed to be gazing down on me quite sternly, so I wasn't sure whether he was going to give permission or not. But it, it reminded me of some of these films where someone finds themselves you know, being interviewed by the secret police somewhere in South America, although I was in the Middle East. And the, the officer didn't speak any English. Obviously, I speak no Arabic, so I couldn't work out what was going on. But you know, he gestured me to take a seat. He made a telephone call. Uh, and through the translator, he said, yes, I'll give you permission to paddle here. But mm. there were a couple of restrictions. He restricted me to paddling either in the marina or on the eastern side of the island. So I wasn't able to go around the whole island. Yeah. And he, 
he, he had a second condition which he, he explained to me I, I was a guest in his country and he wanted to make sure I was safe and no harm came to me. So he he he'd asked a, a a boat, you know, somebody who owned a local boat in the island to follow me round and make sure I was safe. Now whether they were following me round to make sure I was safe or whether they were following me round to keep an eye on me, I've got <laughs> no idea to this day. But uh, you know, there were a few people on the boat, and some of them were taking photographs, and there was a couple of young boys, and I think most people in Arwad probably have seen stand-up paddleboarding before because it is a thing during the summer months in Tartus, but they've mm. probably never seen someone, you know, w- w- with my colour of white skin and white hair and whether I look Scottish or whether I look Russian. They've probably never <laughs> seen anyone like me on a stand-up paddleboard before. Amazing story. And and it really is quite an uh, incredible little island because it's basically half town it's half buildings isn't it and then there's the marina and and that's basically it it's quite an incredible settlement yeah that that's kind of all that's there and it's, i think it's quite famous it was settled millennia ago first of all by the phoenicians and it's always been although it's currently part of syria i think it's always been slightly different to syria as well i didn't have any opportunity to explore any of the other parts of the island apart from the the harbour, the marina, and of course the the office that belonged to the officer. And sadly, that that's a little bit of a running theme with what I do because I have this lifetime goal to paddle in every single country in the world. It often means I don't get to spend as much time there uh, as I might otherwise like. And I, I've come to just accept that. You know, I don't think there's anything I can do about that. So I'd have to spend more time away from home and and more money than I that I can afford to spend if I was going to spend more time in these places. But I'd love to go back to Arwad and just have a walk around the a walk around the rest of the island sometime. Looks absolutely beautiful. Really, really spectacular. And then it was back through Damascus and back the way you came. Did you stay locally overnight after your paddle? Yeah, I had another overnight. We we, we drove back to Damascus after the, the after the paddle at Arwad. We drove back to Damascus and we went VI a place called Crack de Chevalier, which is a an old fort that sits on a, a hillside. I think it was originally built by the Crusaders or taken over by the Crusaders. It's been under the control of various different groups. And but on the way back to Damascus from there, we drove through a, a number of villages which had, in better times, they'd been holiday resorts. You know, the the setup looked similar to the the rows of villas that you might see, you know, somewhere in the Costa del Sol in Spain except it, almost every one of these villas ha- had been bombed out. It was just a grey concrete shell. That that sort of brought home to me, you know, where I was uh, and the fact that the people of Syria had very recently been through such a tough crisis that had placed them all in such difficult situations. And I think that the most poignant moment was watching a, a group of young boys, you know, just playing football in the rubble. You know, young boys play the football the world over, and it made me feel... A little bit melancholy, to be honest, to witness that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the signs you see these places on the news, and I've travelled to places like um, Bosnia and, and Croatia shortly after the war finished, and very, very similar. Just everyday, normal human beings getting on with their lives, but also 
you know, like you found, incredibly grateful to you coming over and um, incredibly hospitable. So that sounds like quite some experience. Uh, Absolutely. I I couldn't agree with you more. I think human beings are a lot more resilient than we often give ourselves credit for. And I I, I saw bravery and resilience in all of the people that I met in Syria. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, quite amazing. So I can't let you go without uh, asking you about another one of your experiences, John. Now, what I sometimes um, ask my interviewees at the end of the recording is, what place in the world would they love to paddle if money and time and obviously COVID was, was no restriction? And normally I get Hawaii quite a lot. That would be on my bucket list. But um, a country people have never mentioned to me is Transnistria. I, I don't know why that is, possibly because I never even heard of it until I was doing the research for this show. But you've been there and that's one of your countries that you've paddled in. That's one of the 45. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience paddling there and and how on earth did you hear about it? I think one reason that people might not mention Transnistria, Simon, is you're right, they've never heard of it. But there's another reason in that it's actually a country which doesn't even exist. It's a, a tiny slither of land which sits on the on the eastern side of Moldova, right up against the border with Ukraine. And it's a very strange part of the world. It's a, it's a country which isn't actually recognised as a country by any other countries in the world. Even though it's got its own police, it's got its own army, it's even got its own navy, although it's inland, it has its own government, it has its own currency and banknotes, it issues its own passports. So to all intents and purposes, it's a country. But nobody else in the whole world thinks it is. It was absolutely fascinating to me. And as soon as I read about it on the internet, I just knew that I had to visit there. And as soon as I realised that there was a river, the river's called the Dniester, which flows between the, the two biggest cities in Transnistria, which are called Bindiri and Tiraspol. As soon as I spotted there was a river that did that exact journey, I just thought, I've absolutely got to paddle there. But even my journey into Transnistria was was quite fascinating, Simon. And if anyone's ever planning to visit Transnistria, I would recommend they, they take the same route that I did. There was a brief civil war there in the early 1990s. It lasted a few days. Sadly, there was some loss of life. And then there was a, a Russian-brokered ceasefire. So Russia still has quite a lot of influence in the area. And... The, the people that live in Transnistria, the majority of them see themselves as having a Russian ethnicity. So that's the the, the background to the history of it. But yeah, the, the best way to get into Transnistria is to fly into, into Romania, to fly into Bucharest, which is mm-hmm. what I did. And then, the, 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 then you need to make your way to Chisinau, which is the, the capital of Moldova. And I, I found a wonderful way to do that. There's an old... 50 or 60 year old Soviet Union era sleeper train that makes the journey from Bucharest to Chisinau. It may not be doing it now, of course, due to lockdown, but it made that journey every single night. So I, I had great pleasure in booking myself into a, I've never been in a sleeper train before, I booked myself into a sleeper train mm. all, all the way from Romania to Moldova. And it was a really exciting journey. At various points, you know, 
the passport control come on and check your documents, then someone come else and searches your luggage and right on the border in the middle of the night, wow. all of the train carriages get lifted up off, off the tracks because the the railway gauge in Moldova and the railway gauge in Romania are a different size, so they have to tra- change all the wheels on the train. It was a it was a wonderful experience, and I've got to confess here, while I was on that train and having my passport checked and the, the wheels were being done, I felt a little bit like a secret agent. I felt a little <laughs> bit like James Bond. And I would say there was only two differences between me and James Bond on that journey. Number one, I wasn't attacked by a trained assassin <laughs> from Spectre. And I was quite relieved about that, to be honest. It's handy, man. And, and the other difference, <laughs> it, was, it was very fortunate. Uh, I, wouldn't, I don't think I'd have managed to fight him off, so I wouldn't be here <laughs> to tell the tale. And the, the other difference between me and James Bond was I didn't get to make love to Miss World. Well, I wasn't quite as relieved about that, <laughs> but I, I, have to conf- I have to confess to the listeners, no, that's not the only day in my life that I didn't get to make love to Miss World. That's one of them. That, that was, that's one of the many days, absolutely. <laughs> that's one, certainly one of them. So I made my way to Moldova. I spent a couple of days there, and then I got a taxi fr- from Chisinau in Moldova uh, across the border into Transnistria. And uh, I felt quite nervous crossing that border because, you know, there was a lot of Russian soldiers there. And I think, I think to a large extent, it's just how we've been brought up and conditioned. Mm. In the West, you know, if they'd been British soldiers or American soldiers or or French or whoever, I would have been delighted to see them. But because they were Russian uh, and we've been conditioned to feel a little bit alienated, I felt quite nervous at seeing the, the, the Russian army there. But, they, you know, they didn't bother me. They didn't even speak to me. And certainly at that point of the trip, I didn't have any run-ins with the, the Russian military, <laughs> although that didn't persist for the entire trip, unfortunately. Really? Yeah, I had a on my on my paddling day when I did the paddle from Bindiri to Tiraspol. As as any of your listeners will know, who are paddlers or or waters people, it's important when you're on a waterway to paddle on the right hand side. Mm-hmm. And as a good stand up paddle boarder, I, I was making my way down the river to Yester, paddling on the right hand side, and I, I came across. I still don't know what this was. It looked like a an old ship that was sort of all brown and rusty and it looked completely derelict to me. It, it, it was moored up on the right-hand side. And I, I just pulled up and sort of pulled round to paddle round it and I was just passing it when suddenly a Russian soldier appeared on the deck of the boat and he was shouting something at me in Russian. I have no idea what it was. And he was gesturing furiously with his arms for me to move away. So, of course, I paddled away moved over to the left-hand side, and, and I just kept paddling. I was scared to look round in case he had his gun out and he was going to shoot me, and I've got no idea what he was shouting because I don't speak Russian. Maybe he was shouting, have a nice day, or maybe he was shouting, yeah, maybe he's shouting, don't fall off, which is the famous <laughs> thing we all hear as paddleboarders, but I was worried he might have been shouting, if you don't stop, I'll shoot. So I just kept paddling, and the, the thought that ran through my mind at that moment was this question. I don't know if any of your listeners will know the answer, but I'd love to know. If you get shot in the back of the head, 
do you hear the sound of the gunshot that kills you? Or, or does it just slam into the back of your head and you're blissfully unaware? If anyone knows, please let me know the answer. Yeah, so there we go. So, um, yeah, message us at SUPFM uh, on uh, Instagram or Facebook <laughs> and uh, we'll get your answer back to John. Uh, I was just thinking that uh, maybe that might be the, the Nistrian Navy there that you came across. Do you think that might be likely? It's quite it's quite possible, Simon. I didn't want to hang about and ask too many questions just in case, but it may well be. Fantastic. Well, that's incredible. And uh, as usual, been very generous sharing your experiences. And I think out of the, the 45, we, we're probably still, well, I've got about two thirds of them to talk about. So uh, if we can do a block booking and um, we'll keep you coming back. That was fantastic and really appreciate your story about Syria. And for those who want to read more about John's adventures, supptheworld.com is out there. I know you've done a lot of work on it, John, haven't you? And uh, there's some really great stories on there. So if you want a bit of escapism and to find out a bit more about John's journey, he's got a very good story about Portugal and, uh, well, everywhere he's been, basically. He's He's had uh, some absolutely cracking adventures. So um, check that out, supptheworld.com. And, of course, we are still committed to paddling the Canal de Midi in France, aren't we, John? We've, uh, we mentioned that earlier I, on. I, absolutely. I think we should make that a definite, mm-hmm. Simon, as soon as, as soon as circumstances allow us to do it. So thanks very much for your time again, John. It's been absolutely incredible. Your stories are uh, absolute legends and uh, I look forward to hearing more of those. Uh, we talked a bit about the website and obviously the Brandt Guide Travel Writing Competition and of course we'll link to those in the show notes but where else can people connect with you and find out about you? Yeah but before I answer that Simon just to th- thank you for inviting me on again it's always a, an honour and a privilege to come on to the SOP FM podcast so Thank you very much for that. The place that I'm most active is on Facebook. So that's uh, facebook.com forward slash sup the world is all one word. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter and I'll, I'll give you the links and maybe you can put them in the in the show notes as well. I will do that. It's been a great chat and look forward to speaking soon. And of course, on the Canal de Midi. Th- thank you, Simon. See you there. So that's it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode with John McFadgen. And if you enjoyed it, then please share it on Facebook. And don't forget to check out our SUP safety course at supfm.thinkific.com. So I'll see you next week with my interview with the very impressive Jordan Wiley. Thank you for listening to SUP FM, the number one podcast for stand-up paddlers wherever you are. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. Until then, we'll see you on the water.